My name's Ewan, if you don't know who I am, um, I know there's many of you watching at home as well who might not know me. I'm the, the one that's probably been sending you annoying emails all the time and probably not replying to yours, so sorry about that. I'm quite forgetful. Um, and I often am quite forgetful. And as life has become increasingly busier, I've um, found it really helpful to keep a diary. It seems like common sense, I know. It's a revelation I've had recently. Um, and you all, you've all probably got different ways of keeping on top of things, whether it be your spouse, whether it be your, your phone, your calendars. They help us to be able to look forward to things that we have coming up. They help us to prepare for them, don't they? But I wonder if there are things in our life that may be so far in the future, maybe three, five, ten years down the line, that they're so far in the future that the waiting period that we live in becomes the normal. The day-to-day -day normal is waiting. Maybe a bit like my auntie's wedding after she was engaged about ten years ago. We're still waiting for that, but it's a different story. Now, <clears throat> one of the significant things for me when I first started going to a Bible-teaching, gospel-preaching church was that I'd never heard of the second coming of Jesus before. Never heard of it. You know, I knew that Jesus had been, because, you know, we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the Incarnation, the fact that Jesus came in the first place. Easter, we celebrate his death. I know all the Bible stories of his life. But I had no idea he was coming back again. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Um, and I think that's probably true for a lot of uh, nominal Christians in the UK. Um, and of course it is something that we should keep in our sight. What a day that'll be, right? The flip side of that is that some people can really latch on to it. It can almost become an, an unhealthy obsession, right? They'll spend years of their lives trying to pinpoint exactly the moment that Jesus is going to return. And they'll use numbers and signs from in the Bible. And history, sadly, is full of stories of individuals and communities who have given over so much, so much time trying to work it out down to a T. So much so that they've, they give up their jobs, they sell their homes, they give away all the money, all their possessions, only to then be disappointed by their own misunderstandings. So, as we live as Christians, I wonder how we put Christ's second coming in our diaries. Where do we put it? We know what's going to happen. So how do we keep a healthy perspective of it? So, today... We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that Gillian just read for us. This is the uh, penultimate sermon of the series, I think it's called. The second last one. Um, and I want to try and give answers to those two questions while we're spending our time in the text. Firstly, where exactly do we put it in our diaries? And how exactly do we prepare for it? Just keep them in the back of your mind as we're going. But first, let's look at Paul's answer to this. When exactly is it going to be? Let's read chapter 5, verse 1. This is the age-old question. Ready? Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. Okay, if Paul's not going to tell us, do you want to know what Jesus says about it? Here's what Jesus says. Jesus' disciples come to him quite a few times throughout his ministry, and they ask him that same question. When is this day going to be? When will your kingdom ultimately be established? Jesus responds, 
about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father. And then after his resurrection, they come to him again and he says to them, it's not for you to know the day or the time that the Father has set. And so I hope this doesn't sound too irreverent, but on the one hand he goes, well, I don't know. And the other hand he goes, oi, mind your own business. So neither Jesus nor Paul give us that specific answer that we're looking for. But Paul does give them an answer, doesn't he? It's just not quite the straightforward answer we're expecting. And what he does is he does that by appealing to what they already know. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. Maybe if you've got the programme in front of you, you'll realise the, uh, the structure looks a little bit messy. It's because I had two structures and I just smashed them together. That's what we've got. So, Firstly, he appeals by what they already know. And we can break that down further because he gives them two word pictures. The first is of a thief. So let's read. Verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Perhaps um, in Paul's three-week three stay with the Thessalonians, when he was in Thessalonica, we can read about it in the book of Acts, perhaps he spent some time talking about that subject with them. The second coming of Christ. The day of the Lord as he calls it. Because he says to them, for you know these things. He does that a lot throughout the letter. You know this. You know what I'm saying to you. Actually, this thief picture isn't a new thought. It's one of Jesus' own analogies to describe the unexpected nature of his return. Okay, let me read to you. You don't need to turn there. From uh, Matthew chapter 24. This is Jesus speaking. If I can get there. Has anybody ever been broken into? Yeah, a few of you. Some people know. Yeah, I can't imagine it's a very pleasant experience. Um, Matthew 24. Jesus says, Keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. And would not have let his house be broken into you, uh, broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Thieves don't make appointments, do they? They don't call you up and go, "Hi, mate, are you going to be in tomorrow night? I'm going to come round and nab your telly. Is that all right?" They don't give warning, and if they did, you would be home. And you'd be awake, wouldn't you? you? You want to be ready for them. The second picture Paul gives comes in uh, verse 3. He says, While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, I've got no right to stand up here and tell you what labour pains feel like. One thing I can tell you is that I don't want to know. But with these two word pictures, Paul is trying to make clear the unexpected, surprising nature of Christ's return and the inevitability of it. Do you get that? It will surprise you. 
It will for sure surprise non-Christians who have lived their lives apart from God and his word. And in a sense, it should surprise Christians as well, because as Jesus says, we're not supposed to know when it's going to be. The difference is, it will either come like a long-awaited, pleasant surprise visit from a dear friend, or it will come as some other unwanted, unexpected knock at the door. Let me illustrate further, okay? In theory, I want my flat to be clean. I promise I'll stop with the flat illustration soon. I want it to be clean so that people can come round any time. Realistically, Jodie will vouch for this, it's a tip and I'm quite embarrassed. And I just cross my fingers and hope that the letting agent isn't going to make some unwanted spot check or worse, one of you guys are going to come round and, and want to come in. I want to be ready. Now, it, it may not seem like a big deal to us that Paul refers to Christ's second coming as the day of the Lord. But what Paul is doing is he's drawing from some rich Old Testament passages that refer to the day of the Lord being a day that God will come himself with a twofold mission. It's a day where God will intervene and his enemies would be destroyed. They will fall under the judgment of the one and only judge who can judge fairly. Reading every heart. And all those who have lived their lives in rejection of him, all those oppressing, abusing, manipulating his people will be judged and punished. We all want to see justice, don't we? And on the other hand, it's going to be a day where God would come and liberate his people. God hears the cries of his children. God sees the darkness that at times feels like it surrounds and consumes us. God hears us. Friends, don't let anyone tell you God doesn't care. Don't believe the lie that God has just wound the world up and he's just letting it run down on its own. He's promised that there will be a day where Christ will return, he'll come again, and on that day there will be judgment for the wicked and there'll be liberation for his people, for his children. As difficult as things may get in this life, keep that day in your perspective. And then there's no wonder the disciples keep asking Jesus about it, right? And there's no wonder that the Thessalonians potentially have asked Paul about it. There's no wonder that Paul sees this as something he wants to tell them about. We've been thinking about the context of the letter, haven't we? The Thessalonians are under persecution. Paul himself got sort of run out of the place. They've not been having an easy time. But Paul is writing this letter to encourage them. And what a great thing for them to have in their perspective, right? The great day of the Lord. Paul says, you know that it will surely come and it will come as a surprise. And the danger for us as professing Christians is that we can get so used to waiting, the waiting becoming the normal, that we can become almost complacent, right? We're in the driver's seat of our own lives. It's a long journey ahead. We don't want to be falling asleep at the wheel. So, how then do we live in light of that day? <clears throat> Second, 
He answers that question by appealing to what they already are. He appeals to what they already are. In our life group, we've been reading John's Gospel, haven't we? And uh, one of the things that we've noted is that one of the Apostle John's favourite illustrations is that of light and dark. People walking in darkness, people walking in light. Those walking in the darkness being those who reject God. And those walking in the light is those who have had their hearts ignited by the light of the gospel. And that light and dark analogy is not too unfamiliar to the world, is it? People often talk about good and bad as light and dark, respectively. Now, the Apostle John makes an observation of those in darkness. In John chapter 3, John writes this. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Now remember this letter, well the whole Bible was written in a time where electric lights didn't exist. And that's true for many countries today. When the sun goes down, there is complete and utter darkness. And it's certainly not a coincidence that the the majority of crimes happen under the, the cover of darkness. Now, back to Thessalonians. Read with me. Paul writes in verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness. You're not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're not in darkness, friends, so like bugs when you lift a slab and they all scatter from the light. You are not in darkness. Verse 5, you are all children of the light. Children of the day. You're not in darkness. There's some great Scottish surnames. MacDonald, MacArthur, MacLeod, and the Mac or the Mick, meaning son of, son of Donald, son of Cloud. That's a weird example. Son of Arthur. Wilson's one of them. Son of Will. And I wonder if Paul was writing to Scottish folk, if he would say to them, you're not in darkness, you're a McDay. You're a McLight. Sounds like something off a McDonald's menu. but Paul sadly is not Scottish, but what he's doing is he's using a phrase that the readers would have been familiar with. So in their culture, to say that someone's a son of something or a child of something means that they're characterised by that something. For example, I'm thinking of the two brothers, James and John, the apostles of Jesus. They, They got a nickname for themselves, didn't they? What were they called? The Sons of Thunder. What do you have to do to get a nickname like that? Well, we see that initially they were boisterous, quick thinking, quick tempered. Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. But Paul says here about the believers, you are all children of the light. 
children of the day. Meaning, as Paul says next, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. You're characterised by that light. So how do we get ready for Christ's second coming? How do we live in light of that great coming day? Well, he appeals to what they are. And he goes on to say two things. He says, since you are children of the light and sons of the day, he essentially says, get up and get dressed. I sound like my mum. First, get up, he says to them. Verse 6, Paul writes, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He's sort of giving application and illustrating at the same time there. He's also speaking in fairly general terms. Most people, I know not everyone, but most people go to sleep at night. Most people, if they want to go out and get drunk, they get drunk at night. You only need to drive down West Street or Ecclesall Road in Sheffield during the day and then at night to get my point. Verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Do you see what he's saying there? He says, since we belong, since we are, let us be. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. He's not commanding us, he's not commanding them to be something that they're not. This is a huge thing that Paul makes a big deal of in many of his other letters as well. He doesn't tell the believers to be something that they're not. He says, be what you already are. Children of the light. Sons of the day. And he's likening those who are in darkness to being asleep, drunk, out of touch with the world, out of control. And those in the day to being awake, alert. He says, don't be doing any of this nighttime stuff in broad daylight. Our lives should be, as believers, should be distinct to the world, right? Jesus himself says that we need to be salt and what? Light. Remember last week when we were looking at chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says that we don't live the same way as those who don't know God. Chapter 4, verse 13, we don't even grieve the same way as those who have no hope. One of those incredibly familiar verses that we tend to read at Christmas, we're actually going to spend some time over the, the Christmas period in this passage. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So rather than acting like you once were before you were a Christian, Paul is emphasising that for these believers, the light has dawned. He says, you know Christ. So get up and live like it. Second, he says, get dressed. There's a common sight in the UK. I wonder if it's unique to the UK. It would be worth asking Claire or Tom. 
You can be in the shop on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning or even in the afternoon. And it's not uncommon to see folk wearing slippers and pyjamas and a dressing gown, right? I hope that's none of you. I'll never understand it. And even in our day-to-day lives, you know, there are particular things that you wear on particular days, on particular occasions, right? You know, if you're going for a job interview, you want to scrub up well, you want to wear a suit or at least at least a shirt. Maybe your job that you have or had, maybe you had to wear specialist equipment. You know, as it gets into autumn or winter and it's cold outside, like today, you dress appropriately. You wear something warm. Unlike Nick and Rich, who wear shorts and sandals all year round, you dress appropriately, don't you? So what do we wear day to day when we are fighting a spiritual battle? What do we wear when we want to live in light of the great day of the Lord? Paul says, verse 8, Put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. That little triad of things has come up quite often, hasn't it? That's the third time it's come up in Thessalonians. That's Paul's formula for living the Christian life. Faith, love, hope. I've often been told off by my friends for uh, not wearing shoes or socks. Put your feet away. Actually, I almost bought some cheesy socks this week that say faith, love and hope as an illustration, but I thought that might be a bit distracting, so I, I didn't. Maybe I'll ask for them for Christmas. But we need that. We need, we need people to, to say to us, you know, put your socks on. Put your faith on. Where's your hat? Where's your hope? But Paul's talking about armour here, isn't he? Man, the amount of times I've watched a war film and sometimes you'll see somebody look up over a trench without their helmet on and you'll be saying on the TV, where's your helmet, mate? You need your helmet? Near enough every time it doesn't end very well. Paul says, verse 9, For God did not appoint us to suffer, suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus. Paul is appealing to what they are. Do you know what you are? Believer, you are appointed to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. That's our helmet. For the Christian, the day of the Lord will come as a nice sort of surprise. Because we are not under the wrath of God. Jesus took all the punishment that we deserve for rejecting God, for living in darkness. He took all that onto himself. This is the Jesus who claimed to be the very light of the world, didn't he? This is Jesus who, as we read at the end of chapter 1, rescues us from the coming wrath. And now we live in light of that truth. That's what being a Christian means. Verse 10. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Whether whether we are awake or asleep, meaning neither life nor death can separate us from what we are in Christ. So verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. 
Like I said, from time to time, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Tell one another, keep your helmet on. So that when the world feels like it's coming crashing down around us, we're protected. Why? Because we have hope. Wear your breastplate. So that when the devil starts firing his darts at you, when he starts shooting his shot, that our faith in God, our faith in God's promises for us, our love for him, our love for his people, for one another, and their love for us, that's what protects us. Christian, get up and get dressed. And if you haven't trusted Christ, then take a glimpse of Jesus on the cross. That's a small picture of that great coming day where God will punish his enemies and he will liberate his people. Liberate his children. Finally, I just want to say two things and then we'll sing. And the first thing I want to say is going to sound really cliche, so hear me out. First thing I want to say is live every day like it's the last. And by that I don't mean YOLO. You only live once. Go and do all the nice things you want to do. Stuff everyone else. I'm going to look out for number one. Be who you want to be. That's not what I mean. What I mean is expect and be ready for Jesus to return tomorrow. Don't fall asleep. Get dressed. Faith, love, hope. Wear your armour. Be encouraging to your brothers and sisters. This is what the church is for. This is one of the reasons why we gather. This is one of the reasons why we do life groups. And if you're not in a life group, come speak to one of us. And the second thing I want to say is to live each day patiently, eagerly awaiting in the normal faithfulness of the Christian life. Expect him to come back years from now. Expect him to come back not even in your lifetime. You know, living in the light of Jesus' second coming doesn't mean that we retreat from our daily lives. You know, I don't want you to leave here tonight and go home and sell your house and give away all the money and give away all your belongings and sit in a field and wait for Jesus. That's not what I'm saying to you. Go and work hard. Go and build relationships. Go and bear fruit. Go and be God's image bearers out in the world as we were made to be. Let us go and live our lives in the light of the gospel. Of what Christ has done for you in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Until he comes or calls.